It was 82 years ago this week that Winston Churchill gave one of his most inspiring speeches. He was prime minister by that time for less than a month, and in that short period of time, the Nazis had invaded France, Belgium had fallen, and the German army was on the shores of the English Channel. The mood across Britain was dark, and in what was only his second major speech as Prime Minister, Churchill stood before Parliament, and he knew that he needed to rally the nation. He said, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Friends, I want you to think of that same kind of passion animating our preacher this morning. When you look at verse 14, and he tells his congregation, hold fast. I want you to hear in that, and never surrender. Never give up. Never let go. Never turn back. This early church is in danger. And so their pastor, through his pen on paper, is rallying them to take action. But he doesn't give them just empty rhetoric. No, he points them to their only hope, to the superiority of Jesus over the tradition that they had left behind. Already, as we have gone through this book of Hebrews, we've seen how the pastor has pointed out that Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is better than the angels. And Jesus is better than Moses, the lawgiver. And now he turns to the bulk of his argument. In fact, starting here at chapter 5, verse 1, and stretching all the way into chapter 10, the author is going to make a sustained argument that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. He's better than Aaron, the high priest, and he's better than the sacrificial system that could never actually rescue and redeem people from sin. And he wants his congregation, and by extension, I believe the Holy Spirit wants you and me to have hope and confidence in the face of our hardship and trials. Is there anybody here this morning that needs to hear that? Is there anybody here this morning that can look back, even in this past week, or at some point recently where you have felt your grip on Jesus begin to slip? Or maybe you're in danger of turning back, of letting go, of giving up. Someone needs to hear this preacher's exhortation to hold fast. Some of you are out there saying, well, Eric, I'm at, I've actually had a good week this week. I'm doing okay this week. Okay, I appreciate that. Praise God. Don't check out, okay? Don't fall asleep. Don't check Instagram. Like, stick with me this morning. Because you need to work this message down into your heart. You need to make a deposit. 
Because someday you're going to have to draw down that deposit. You're going to be in a place, you're going to be in a position where you're struggling. And you need to be able to remember and grab hold of this preacher's exhortation to hold fast. Why do we need to hold fast? Look at verse 14. Jesus is our high priest. That's why we need to hold fast. He's better than Aaron in the previous covenant. Now, Jesus being a high priest, that would not have been an obvious conclusion for these new Christians who had recently uh, turned or converted from Judaism. They knew that Aaron's family gave Israel its high priests. And they also knew that Jesus was a descendant of David. And so he wasn't coming from the tribe of Levi, where all of the priests came through. He came from the royal tribe of Judah. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1, the author begins to give us a job description for the high priests. First, he kind of tells us that they need to come from within the people of Israel and they need to offer sacrifices. And then the second big bucket that he tells us is that they actually need to be called by God, that someone can't make themselves a high priest. So starting at verse 1, he says that the high priest has to be chosen from among men to act on behalf of men. And what this means is that the high priest had to be somebody that could know and understand Israel's needs. So Aaron and his sons, who were the first high priests, they had gone through the exodus with Israel. Aaron died in the wilderness, and his sons carried on the priesthood into the promised land. But they knew the hardships that the people of Israel had gone through. They knew the struggle of Israel. And so they were able, as verse 2 says, to have a genuine sense of empathy for the people of God. What you don't want, this text is telling us, is a high priest who is disconnected from the people. You don't want some caste of priests who are somehow to so totally disconnected from the people that they minister to that they don't understand their real needs. And so Israel's priests are chosen from among them. They're supposed to have empathy for them. And in verse 3, they're supposed to offer sacrifices for them. First for their own sin and then for the sins of the people. And this verse is really looking forward to one particular sacrifice in the Jewish religious year. On the Day of Atonement... When the high priest would first go through this elaborate ritual of washing himself and then making a sacrifice for himself before he took the sacrifice into the innermost chamber of the temple where standing before the Ark of the Covenant, he would sprinkle the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant as a sacrifice for the people of God. The people of Israel need a priest who comes from within, who understands their needs, and who can offer a sacrifice for sin. That's the first big bucket in that job description. The second big bucket is that this guy has to be called by God. Look at verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
If you want some reading material later on today or this week, turn to Exodus chapter 28 to read about Aaron's being called as a high priest. Turn to Leviticus chapter 8 to read about his consecration as a high priest. Even this morning from Psalm 133, as we chanted that, we sang about the oil of consecration that flowed down Aaron's head, touching even the edges of his clothing. He had been set apart by God to serve in this role. And after Aaron, that role was supposed to go from father to son, father to son, all the way down through Aaron's family. Now what's very interesting is that after the Babylonian exile, it was difficult to have a high priest from Aaron's family. And that's because after Israel came back from Babylon, they were no longer their own independent nation. And instead, the rulers of Israel decided that that was one of the ways that they could control Israel was by naming the high priest themselves. And so Rome named high priests, and Herod and his family named high priests. Some of you probably remember this spring at the end of the Gospel of John when we read about both Annas and Caiaphas being high priests at the same time. That's supposed to pass down from father to son. A new high priest is brought forward when an old high priest dies. But part of what that shows us is that these other rulers were messing with Israel's religion. The last high priest before Jerusalem fell in 70 AD was elected by popular ballot. Can you get the frustration that our pastor feels? Why do you want to go back to a broken system? Why do you want to go back to something that God ordered at first and has completely devolved from that order? Stick with Jesus instead. That's the big job description of the high priest. Here's the question. Does Jesus fit that description? Well, we need someone from among us who can represent us. And we read in chapter 4, verse 15, that he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted as we are. He went through what you're going through. In chapter 5, verse 7, we read that he shares our flesh. And this is very similar to the passage that Pastor Marcus preached on a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 17, where he said he was made like his brothers. Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. In chapter 5, verse 8, we learn that he learned obedience through suffering. Is he like us? He shares our flesh. He suffered like we suffer. He was tempted like we're tempted. It sounds like he's like us. He's, he's chosen from among us. But we also need someone who is actually appointed to that office. And in verse 5, that's what our, our pastor says. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And the context of that quote is not about Jesus' incarnation, his birth. 
It's instead the context of his ascension into heaven and his ruling and reigning at God's right hand where he is both king and priest because he makes intercession for his people. And the author keeps going down that line of thinking with another quote from Psalm 110, which describes the coming Messiah as being both king and priest. But did you notice what kind of priest he is? He's not a priest in this family line of Aaron. No, in verse 6 and then again in verse 10, the author says that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And some of you are saying, Melchizedek, what? Who? Who is this guy? And that's a really good question. We're going to spend more time on Melchizedek in a couple of weeks when we get to uh, chapter 7. But if you know anything about the story of Melchizedek, you remember that he shows up once in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 14. And he shows up after a battle in which Abraham has emerged the victor. But rather than give obedience or rather than give honor to Abraham, Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is greater than him. And he gives honor to Melchizedek. And so when we think about the priesthood of Melchizedek, one of the things that we have to recognize is that he is superior to Abraham, which means that he is superior to all of Abraham's descendants, i.e. Aaron and the high priesthood. We also can see that he is a priest. He is called in Genesis chapter 14, a priest of the most high God. He is a priest way before Aaron was ever even a glimmer in his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's eye. His priesthood is older than Aaron's priesthood. And then the third thing that I want you just to really quickly grab hold of, and we'll unpack this more when we get to uh, chapter 7, but Melchizedek is not a Jew. Melchizedek is not part of the family of Abraham. Melchizedek is a Gentile. And that means that his priesthood isn't limited merely to Israel, which is how Aaron's priesthood was limited. And so what the pastor is saying to his congregation here is like, listen, we have a greater high priest than Aaron. He's not limited to just his own people. It's an ancient priesthood that stretches well beyond Aaron's priesthood. What we're getting a sense here is just of the glory and of the majesty of Jesus. The author is telling his congregation, why do you want to go back to something that's worse than Jesus? Why do you want to go back to a system where the high priest could only enter into the presence of God once a year? And you got to believe that he did it as quickly as possible to get out of there before he was struck dead. Why go back to that when you have a high priest who is always in the presence of God? Oh man, Eric, this is amazing, but I kind of feel like maybe I have a whole lot more in common with Aaron than I do with Jesus. 
And maybe that's the guy that I need as a priest. Someone who feels more like me. But did you catch back in chapter 4, verse 15? Our high priest can also sympathize with our weakness. What kind of weakness are we talking about here? I think we refer to physical weaknesses, emotional weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses, our own moral failings, and just the, the sadness of living in a fallen world. You can imagine Jesus' grief and his anger over what happened down in Uvalde this week. He can sympathize because he has entered into our suffering. We sang that this morning. Born to share our human story, love, labor, grieve, and die. Friends, I want you to think about this. Shakespeare could never enter into Hamlet. Rembrandt could never climb into one of his canvases. But the creator of the spheres has taken on human flesh and become one of us. He can sympathize with our weakness. He is also, the text goes on to say, he has been tempted in every respect as we are. Now, this is an interesting question, theological question, that theologians have wrestled with for many years. What does it mean that Jesus, in every respect, was tempted as we are? I don't think it means that Jesus experienced all the temptations in the world. So every temptation that you're going to experience, I don't think it means that Jesus himself experienced that personally. As one example, if you're married here this morning, you know that there are particular temptations within the marriage relationship as you relate to your spouse and other people, or even if you're a parent, there are particular temptations related to that relationship of parenting. Well, Jesus was never married. He was never a parent. So that experience is not something that he shared. One of the other things that we have to reckon with is that you and I have temptations that come up from within us. They come up out of our fallen nature. There are desires that we struggle with that are in themselves sinful even if we never act on them. So because you have the thought, because you have the feeling, because you have the desire, that is sin that needs to be mortified in your flesh, even if you never actually act on it. Well, Jesus did not have a fallen nature like you and me. And so those kinds of inward temptations are not things that he faced. Jesus also endured temptations that were very specific to him. How many of you, show of hands, have been tempted to turn bricks or uh, stones into bread? Maybe if you got lost camping or something like that. But no, that's not something that we've been tempted with. That was something that's very particular as Satan is trying to turn him away from the smile of his father to bow the knee to the prince of the air. So when you fight temptation, I don't want you to stop and think, huh, I wonder.
wonder if Jesus was tempted by this temptation. The better thing for you to remember is that he was tempted in ways far more serious than you will ever be tempted. And yet, he was victorious. Now see, this is the good news that I don't want you to miss from the end of verse 15. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Friends, that's the best news in this passage. Jesus was without sin. And that's what allows us to look to Jesus, not just for sympathy, but to find salvation in Jesus. I don't need someone who normally or can simply feel my pain. I need someone who can step into the mess of my life and rescue and redeem me. I need someone who can give me their righteous record as my own. Friends, you hear this because Jesus was faithful where I was faithless. Because he was victorious where I failed. Because he stood firm where I fell. Now I am invited to Boldly, as some old translations put it, or with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Nowhere else in the Bible do we read that description of God's throne. The throne of grace. Whenever we think about God's throne, we think about the the throne of authority, the throne of judgment. The throne of holiness and righteousness and justice. But we don't ever think about the throne of grace. What makes God's throne a throne of grace? If you have your Bibles, turn back just a page or two or scroll up to uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. That's a happy sound, all those pages turning. (laughs) Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, chapter 1, verse 3. And the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus ascended into heaven. That's also what we read here in verse 14 of chapter 4. He passed through the heavens. He ascended into heaven where he makes purification for our sin. And again, the pastor is calling on these Jewish converts, asking them to remember what they know about the religion they left behind about that day of atonement when the Old Testament priest, high priest, would walk into the Holy of Holies, not with boldness, not with confidence, but having made an atonement for his own sin, going into that place where he would sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You remember what the top of the Ark of the Covenant was called, right? It was the mercy seat. And it was there that God told Moses he would meet with Israel. But that was just an earthly copy of a heavenly reality. Jesus ascends into heaven. 
and at the heavenly altar gives his blood to the Father to say, it's done, it's finished, sin has been put away. Friends, that's what turns the mercy seat into a throne of grace. Now there is nothing for you to fear from God. If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, if you look to him alone for your salvation, friends, your relationship with God has been radically changed. No longer afraid, no longer pushed away, no longer kept at arm's distance so that you don't die. But instead, you are invited to come like a child would come into their daddy's office, to come like a child would come and tug on his shirt, to come like a child would come with no thinking that what's the propriety of it all? Come boldly. Come with confidence into the throne of grace because there you're going to get mercy and grace. Mercy is you're not going to be punished for your sins. Do you believe that? I don't think many of us do. We cast our eyes about at our life and go, oh, that must be because I did something bad last week. We all are Buddhists. And it's sad. We all believe in karma. But friends, we get mercy, not punishment. We get grace. Instead of getting what we do deserve, we get what we don't deserve. We get demerited favor. The author tells us to hold fast and to draw near. And both of them are plural. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. And that tells you that when you get to the throne of grace, there's going to be a crowd of people there. Who do you think you're going to see? I think a lot of us are going to be surprised. We'll see the Nazi guard from the death camp that Corey Tin Boom survived, who later heard her witness to her faith in Jesus Christ and with tears in his eyes said, is that forgiveness for me too? We'll see King David there, a murderer, a sexual offender. From him, Jesus comes. We sing his prayers in our church. We'll see Jeffrey Dahmer there, sociopath, the serial murderer who professed Christ while he was on death row. We'll see Saul of Tarsus there, a self-proclaimed blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man who made a career out of hunting down Christians who would later call himself the chief of sinners. You'll see me there. And I'll see you there. And we'll look at one another in wonder and awe. Because grace flows to the strangest places. A few weeks ago, our choir sang one of my favorite pieces. And of course, I wasn't here. <laughs> Come ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish. Come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts, here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. 
Here, see the bread of life. See waters flowing forth from the throne of God, pure from above. Come to the feast of love. Come, ever knowing. Earth has no sorrow, but heaven can remove. Let's pray. Father, you invite us to your throne of grace, not just one day out of the year and not just at the end of the ages, but every day to come before you with our needs, with our sorrows, our griefs, our joys, our victories, our questions. And you promise us that we'll get mercy and grace to help in time of need. Father, we admit and are sorrowful that we often are looking for more than mercy and grace. So Lord, fix our eyes on what you promised to give us in Christ, and Lord, help us to see how remarkable it is. Help us to fix our hope on Jesus. It's in his name we pray.